ride with me in my foul life. Podcast world, what's up? Back at you, the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you all so much for being here again. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Gerber Knives. Remember why we use Gerber? We talk about it on every episode, but whether you're building a blind to hide from those birds, that turkey, that white tail, whether you're processing and butchering your game, whether you're in the kitchen with your culinary flair, all steps of the process of being a hunter, a provider, Gerber's there for us. We depend on them daily. We do not drive in trucks that don't have knives in them. We don't carry blind bags that don't have knives in them, and we don't wear pocketed jeans or khakis that don't have a knife in the front left or right pocket so gerber thank you for everything that you do and today's episode is also brought to you by none other simply perfect benelli the new sbe3 i want you guys to check out guys and girls check out the new best b period e period s period t period the new coating that benelli is applying to the super black eagle 3 look at the studies and the testing that they've done over the last six years on this and it is absolutely amazing the results that they're getting from rust, corrosion, water, anything that you put your gun through. If you have to use your Benelli for a boat paddle, you literally can now with the best technology, best coding. B period, E period, S period, T period. Check it out right now, BenelliUSA.com. We're so proud to have them as our title sponsor for the eighth year in a row. Simply perfect. Thank you, Gerber. Thank you, Benelli. Today's guest goes right along with that term, simply perfect. I think that Dave is just kind of lives by that, huh, Dave? You're simple, but everything just seems to work out perfectly for you. I think it's probably because I I don't know if we've ever really gotten into I think a really interesting talk would you with you would be how did you get so good? <laughs> at so many different things. And I'm not, I don't want to sit here and, and just blow your head up all, you know, cause I know you don't like that, but it'd be a really interesting topic that I want to get into someday of how, how did you get so good? Because a lot of people pick up a fly rod, but don't become as proficient as you have, which is, I don't, I don't even think that's the word that you would use to describe it or a shotgun or a duck call or a bow and all of that. It's, I think that that's a cool, I think you need to write a book, I guess is my point. Dave Stanley. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chad. I always look forward to talking to you. <laughs> or hearing that. Not, like not, that. not about me specifically, but I always look forward to talking to you. Well, did you hear uh, the episode with Tom and Sam yet? I know that you listen to these when you're I driving. Did. I did. Did you hear him talking about you? I did. <laughs> I, I, you were the first name I brought up, and, and they, they said M.O. <laughs> the Master Outdoorsman. And the reason I have that title is because of you. If you remember... Uh, a dozen years ago, the first year of the foul life, I think we did a swan hunting episode and you didn't know what to put after my name. So you put Dave Stanley, master outdoorsman. Oh, is that why they call it? And there are, uh, yeah, all of my son's friends call me MO. That's, that's just what they, and they have for a dozen years, <laughs> <laughs> not because I am, but because they think it's funny. So, <laughs> oh, you are, there's no doubt. Hey, what is the deal with pintails in the Pacific flyway? Um, the reason I'm asking is because I, Spent quite a few days in the rice this year, um, of quite a few days in the Butte Sink. Even the last day of the season in January, what it was at 28th or whatever, I was in the Butte Sink. And I could not believe the number of bull sprig. And you, you, at that time of year, you're starting to see the, you know, the, the mating flights and, 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 you know, a lot of bulls. I'm talking six, seven, eight, nine. We saw like 12 bulls in one with one hen. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, all the courting flights are going on. These hens are getting chased like crazy. 
you can kill one a day. You literally, we literally on that last day were done in 20 minutes. And I'm talking at eight feet, eight yards, just right in the decoys back flapping. Sure. They'd come over and Rocky'd hit him with that whistle. And they were so responsive. We had a little bit of a breeze, but what is it because is, do they base it on the, the overall number of sprig? Because it seems like the Pacific flyaway should be more. Just tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that. Well, from what I know about it, the, the sprig is like the canvas back and the redhead. It's managed nationwide. So whatever the limit is, it's the limit nationwide. All right. Um, that's done because those those ducks, particularly canvasbacks and, and pintails and redheads, who are, you know, very popular birds that people, you know, pursue specifically. And um, but I, I think there's there's a couple of faults in their in their thinking. And the service is the one that, you know, the, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service determines how the birds will be managed. M managing um, pintails on a nationwide basis really penalizes the Pacific Flyway because we have tons of them. Um, you know, and there's other flyways that have a lot of pintails, but we, we have more, I think we have more than anybody. Um, uh, they certainly, uh, most of them nest north of us here someplace. Um, we see a lot of them in Canada, obviously, and, uh, and then on down the flyway. The, I, I know that the, the one bird limit this past year came from nesting surveys a year and a half ago. So that there's always going to be a one-year lag the way they do it, you know, and there has to be. I mean, they can't set the seasons on a minute's notice. So, um, but but I I do believe that they need to, particularly with the pintail, they need to not manage it on a nationwide, continent-wide basis. Um, they need to, you know, they need to split it up by the flyways, like they do other things, like they do mallards. I mean, the mallards doing very poorly in the eastern flyway right now. They, I think the limit's down to two. We can kill seven. Okay. Maybe one now in the east. And it, well, it may be next year. One. Maybe one. It, it, oh, it, it was two it this year. Oh, okay. So it might be one next year. Yeah. Wow. Can you imagine going hunting and only be able to kill one mallard? No. I can't imagine. You, no. Have you ever faced a season where the mallard limit was that low where you lived, whether it was Virginia? Yeah. When I lived in Virginia, if you shot a hen, it was a hundred point duck back in the, during the point system. So you were done. Yeah. For the season or the day? Just the day. Just the day. You yeah. hundred points a day. And actually, I take that back. Black ducks were a hundred point ducks. Hen mallards were 90 point ducks. So. So you still kill one more. You made now. a comment in there that they that a lot of sprig nest north of here, which we're in Nevada, so this is the Pacific Flyway. We have Oregon just to the a little bit to the northwest of us, then Idaho, and we have Washington, which all, that whole Columbia River Basin, Snake River Basin, Boise River, all that, you know, the, I guess, the Willamette Valley, I don't know. Is there a lot of sprig that stop in Oregon, or do they come straight into California and, and, and kind of the Stillwater Marsh area? Well, you know, I don't know that. Um, I, I don't think there's as many that come that way as come. We get a lot of birds from Alberta, okay. you know, and Saskatchewan too. But, but the, so they're they're coming south and west to get to us. Okay, you know, and they come to Montana. Freeze Out Lake is a big collection area for all kinds of waterfowl. Yeah. Um, the Bear River, right at the north yeah. end of the Great Salt Lake, is the next step, kind of coming south. And, and every step is coming a little farther south and a little farther west, and the next stop is the Stillwater Marsh. Well, that's yeah. a good point because you always see a lot of sprig in the potholes just along yeah. Interstate 80 going into Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. So that whole like that whole system to where you get like from between Windover and Salt Lake, and you start seeing all that, you know, pretty much where the Salt Lake starts. But where where is the biggest nesting area for sprig? Is it in is it is it north of Alberta? Is that why most of them come through Alberta? So I think that when those pintails come south, 
you know, the I think the majority of them migrate south and west from from um, Canada or from the prairie potholes, and uh, I, I don't think. I don't believe there's any place that has as large a concentration of them as the Central Valley of California by the time you get to January, you know, or February. Yeah, I mean, I've seen them in Arkansas, and I've I've seen them. I've seen a lot of them in I've seen Louisiana, them in Texas, Louisiana, you know? Texas. But man, California, I'm talking like there's checks that you could walk across them, and and maybe they're all concentrated there, so we're seeing a lot of what's there. Whereas in along coastal Texas. You know, you see them here, you see them there, but you don't see them everywhere. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't know what the how the numbers are divided up. I just know that where they come in in the Pacific Flyway is they really get bunched up in Nev- northern Nevada, and and then certainly in the Central Valley of California. And you'd think we could shoot more than one of them. If it's, I mean, if they're, I love mallards. I love to hunt mallards. But if there is a cooler duck to watch, just on the water. You know, the way sprig are and the way that they're, the way they swim and the way they eat and just, they're just, they're just a killer, killer looking duck. And then that part of California is so special. It's amazing to me how many people I encounter that are so surprised when I tell them that California is good hunting. They're like, really? (laughs) Even like, even like baseball players that I've talked to that play for the Dodgers now. They're like, no way, no. Right. Well, I'm from Ohio. We kill them. And I'm like, you, this is this will blow Ohio into the like. It's an unbelievable sp- spot. But, to hunt but think about the places that they go in California. You know, they go to San Francisco, <clears throat> they yeah. go to L.A., they go to San Diego. That, that's what they see yeah, is exactly places right. with seven million or more people. <laughs> Has, isn't isn't it weird though? Like, and I'm not trying to, you know, say that. Stuttgart's the ultimate, but it is the mm-hmm. ultimate destination for duck hunters. It truly is. It's the tough marketing, to beat. The marketing behind it has brought them to the duck capital of the world. When I don't know, and we've had this conversation before, we may have, I, I've, I've had it with somebody on the podcast about tourism as far as hunting goes. And I just wonder why more people don't visit that area. Is it because they just are so turned off by what happens in California, like or what is said to be happening in California? The attitude of California, maybe? Well, I think that it's not, you know, there's not the public ground in California necessarily that there is in Arkansas to go and hunt. It's a little more complicated in California. I believe, and and I could be wrong about this, but I think all of the federal and state refuges in California, you have to, you know, you either sit in this wet line or you put in for a draw ahead of time, you know, to to get your place in line. Um, you know, that's not the case in Arkansas. So, you know, you just drive up and go on most places. Um, if you're so, a resident. <laughs> <laughs> True. It, it's kind of get. I mean, they have made it tougher. But, yeah, that's a good point. It is. It would be more complicated. It, it is more complicated for the public land. And then the private, you know, there's lots of private land. There's surprisingly few outfitters like Rock uh, Merlot, you know, who is amazing and and has a lot of land and and can show people a lot of different things, you know, as far as waterfowl hunting goes. But there are not a lot of guys that do that. Now you'll get calls from me. Oh, there's lots of us, but there there really isn't compared to the size of the area. You know, if if you look at the number of guide services within 20 miles of Stuttgart versus how many of them are in the Central Valley of California, you know, it'll be a lot different. Kind of could you could kind of take that analogy into another state that we frequent out here in this because mm-hmm. of the outfitters. But moving on, what we experienced in February, where you're the president of the Canvasback Gun Club and the youth hunt, the amount 
first off, it, thank you. It was unreal. We haven't even had a podcast since then, but it was a, a truly like enlightening weekend. We'll get into that. I was thinking about having a podcast with the kids and having them talk about <laughs> what they experienced. Cause that, be it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, why, why, like we just talked about spray. Why are there so many cans there? Well, you know, it was an unusual year, but, but we've had that the last couple of years when we have water, there's a lot of canvasbacks and redheads. They come to the Stillwater Marsh. They come there in November. They stay till December and then it freezes usually. And then they leave. It didn't this year. And they just stayed and stayed. And then more came back, you know, by the time late January, early February showed up. And I mean, it was, that was an epic can show for sure. You know, the wind blew for us that day oh of the youth gosh. hunt. We're talking about, um, it was, I think it was the 8th of February yeah. or something. And then the next day would have been just as glorious. Yeah. Yeah. And the next day it really blew and was nasty, but the kids wouldn't have had as much no, fun because it, it was cold the it next cold. day. But it was, it was the end of a long stretch of warm weather. So we got that wind and it wasn't that cold. So, you know, I mean, my kids, the two kids I took, I never heard a complaint about them Not at all about weather. Or I had two girls and they didn't say a word. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh. You know, they were too busy shooting, the two kids I had. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they literally, two of them, shot single-shot 410s, and both of them shot two boxes of shells. <laughs> That's hard to do, so one cool. shell at a time. So with what you said about the way that we manage across the country for the redhead, the sprig, mm -hmm. and the can, should this part of the Pacific Flyway, or should the Pacific Flyway be the limit be different here as opposed to other places because of the numbers that we see, or is it too inconsistent to say that? Well, I think that... I believe, and from what I've been told by biologists whose, you know, counsel I seek, um, waterfowl biologists, you know, I think they have a pretty good handle on the canvasback population. I don't think that's true with the sprig population, okay? Um, the canvasback population nests in a much smaller area, so, that, you know, they're just going to be more accurate than they are. So I think two birds, that's fine. You know, I, don't, I mean, I, I don't, you can go to Canada and shoot eight. You know, yeah. not, but not that many people do that. Are they is, as pretty in Canada as when we saw no, them? Here? No, 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 no. Like I mean, they're beautiful. They're beautiful birds, regardless, but they're not feathered out like they were in the first week of February. Man, was that an amazing God, yeah. What an amazing time to be able the to The taxidermist hit a home run that day. They huh? did. I already took it in. I mean, I have no idea how many kids got those cans mounted, but. Well, I know we got all three. Wade got both of theirs. And both of my kids got a bull can mounted, and one of them, his dad had told him before the day started that if he shot a Drake sprig he'd get that mounted and he shot one with a Boone and crockett stinger oh on you it. sent me the picture i was yeah, jealous that was the only three ducks they shot out of a hundred tries but <laughs> when you talk about divers yeah, fun. when you talk about divers you you think of you know the different you know the redheads or the ringnecks and the bluebills and the buffle heads and then there's the can and i'm talking now i'm moving into the edible part of, of eating ducks cans are awesome they are I was talking to Sabini yesterday. He had made some for lunch, skin on, fat on. I remember how many, I don't know how many I've eaten in California. Ken Hoffman, who, you know, mm -hmm. that's sure. one, that was his favorite duck to eat. So when you would go eat there, you'd have can. Why is that compared to the, 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 the flair of the other ducks, the flavor, the taste? I know it has to do with the skin, the fat, the diet, the nutrition, all that. But can's a diver too, right? Or do they have a mm -hmm. completely different diet? No, I don't think it's completely different. I, I think all divers, you know, choose, you know, all divers that that are vegetarian as well as, well as meat eaters. Um, by meat eaters, I mean fish and shellfish and whatever. Um, you know, I think they choose 
the the vegetable choice if they can get it because they don't have to chase it. I mean, it's pretty easy, you know. Right. But they're going to choose whatever's readily available and in in, in abundance. Um, <clears throat> the canvas backs we get here, and you know, I mean, I've shot some that I've shot in the San Francisco Bay that weren't the best ducks I've ever eaten, you know, and, and I think they were probably eating shellfish or or um, or some minnows or whatever, um, something other than uh, eelgrass or widgeon grass or whatever it is they eat. Uh, in the bay, um, but you know, in the Stillwater Marsh, we have very few fish, and because it dries up regularly, and um, we have a lot of sago pondweed, which is the primary uh, food that the the divers eat there, and you know that that makes for good camasbacks on the table. So you you you're saying that it's it's kind of like the where I was going to go into next. We're, we're going to talk about specs, but you had made a comment to, before on this podcast about when the specs transfer from rice to grass that there that you can automatically taste the difference when a lot of people myself included say that spec is the best eating waterfowl there is it's my favorite so many good recipes with it you can do it with mallard you can do them with a lot but spec just seems to be so easy to make good every time mm-hmm. i don't know if you agree with that i do but, actually but you did say that right that once they move to grass or different food off the rice it, it completely changes the taste i don't know if it completely changes it but it changes it you know they're they're I mean, they're just not getting the same, you know, they're not processing the same amount of protein and all of the other things that come with grain that don't come with grass. And, and honestly, I don't know why they do that, you know, but it seems like in late January, they just switch, you know, and, and it could be that they've picked over the rice field so much that there's just not that much grain left. Um, uh, and it could be it's just something in them that says, okay, time to go to grass. You know, you got to you gotta get used to eating grass because that's all you're going to get now for, you know, there's not going to be any grain for another five or six months. And, and that's true, you know, in most cases. I mean, it, it's, there's exceptions to that, obviously, as they migrate back north. There's some places that we know some people, landowners in Hagerman, Idaho, for example, who put down a bunch of food for the, for the you know, knock down a bunch of their standing corn and whatever at the time when the birds fly back north. So they... They've got some good fuel to, you know, keep going, but not everybody does that for obvious reasons. And um, it's, you know, it's a weird thing that they switch to grass, but I see why they do it. You know, they don't have much choice. Okay. You just, you altered something. You altered the conversation from moving into specs, but the the corn. Mm -hmm. Has anything happened in the last 12 months, which is, you know, one duck season really, in your mind, in your psyche, that is making your decision or your thoughts or um opinions on flooded corn do they still stand where they always have it's uh, and where is that right now in our country because you hear a lot of it where in arkansas where are the ducks in louisiana where are the mallards why aren't they coming down here anymore has anything altered in your head since our last conversation regarding flooded corn you know i'm i'm i must say i'm kind of wear blinders where the pacific flyway is concerned (laughs) because that's where i spend the vast majority of my time hunting i mean i do hunt a little bit in the other flyways but you know not regularly and 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 i have heard that 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 the people in the southern part of the country feel like, you know, uh, southern parts of the country feel like, um, you know, that the migration is stopping. It's not coming to them anymore. Um, and and I, I'm sure that's true in places. I don't think that's so true here. Um, I think it's weather driven. OK, they can be in that corn all they want to in Idaho and eastern Washington. And when there's a foot and a half of snow on it, they can't eat there anymore. So they're going to come south. And that's just what they do. And we haven't had those conditions the last couple of years. So, 
you know, they did what I would do. They hung out where the buffet was open and free. Okay. okay and what about hunting flooded corn? Um, I don't have a problem with it at all. You know, I think that it's, you're providing, when you look at the fact that you can kill seven ducks and you and I have both been to places together in some cases where we walk out to a cornfield or go out in the morning in the dark and you can just hear the thunderous number of birds getting up out of there. So, you know, some are going to come back and you're going to kill a few, right? So we kill seven or you kill seven and I kill seven. So we kill 14 out of 20,000. Okay. We're, we're not even scratching the surface. Now, certainly those are 14 that aren't going to reproduce next year and all of that. I get all of that, but, but the hunter take is, is less than the natural mortality of the birds anyway. So wait, say that again, meaning that the natural ways that a duck can die, which would be disease, predator, old age, old age, uh, yeah. bad hatch, or does that even count? in the power line, power all kinds of things. All kinds of, yeah. So the number that the, the, the national number that American duck hunters harvest is less than that. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah for sure it is. Um, and if it wasn't, that would be a problem, you know? Yeah. Um, and of course, part of that, you know, so some of those ducks we harvest don't die of disease or don't die of old age or don't die of hitting a power line or whatever, you know? So, you know, part of the take is what would have been natural mortality anyway. And then part of it is in addition to the natural mortality. Um, but, but the, the number, the overall number is smaller than, you know, the natural mortality of the duck population of North America. So you don't have an issue, but you could, if you lived in a different part of the country, would you be asking some of the same questions or would you probably have to educate yourself a little bit more on why aren't, why has, has the flyway changed and is Arkansas still harvest the amount of mallards that they're used to? They're sure they're, there's sure a lot of argument for that, of that they're not getting down there. But then once you get to Arkansas, there's so many new places that are farmed for ducks pretty much yeah. that they're changing the actual state flyway of how the ducks act once, act once they're, you know, over in the Black River area, the White River, the Cache or the Mississippi, whatever that is. And they funnel down into there. I think once they get to Arkansas, things have changed a lot, too. Well, of course they have. I mean, I, I grew up in Virginia, I think, as we said earlier on. And, <clears throat> you know, you talk about a flyway change in the eastern flyway. I mean, North Carolina, the Currituck Sound and places like that used to be world-class duck hunting. And I'm sure there's some people out there who are going to say, hey, it still is. Okay, fine. But not for as many people as it was. And the Chesapeake Bay, same thing. And, um, you know, that was, that, was the, that was where all the birds came. You know, they came south. That's where they came. And, and then more birds, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, ended up in South Carolina and Georgia than they do currently because of all of the farming on the Delmarva Peninsula, the Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia Peninsula, and then just agriculture in general north of Virginia uh, or north of North Carolina. Um, you know, the birds don't come like they used to. I mean, they don't come as far south anymore. They stop. And I, I, my brother lives in Delaware and hunts every day of the season, and <clears throat> that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> Um, but you know, and, and he sees it where they're not, you know, it's even changing there, right. Which used to be the spot that they were all stopping at. Now different things are happening there that are affecting their, their hunting. So I, I think it's just a change in game. I, I, I don't think you can blame it on the corn farmers in Indiana and Illinois or whoever they're blaming it on, or think that, you know, there's a problem with flooding corn north of them. 
Um, and, and I don't live there, so, you know, I, I'm not claiming to be an expert on their flyway at all or on mine for that matter. But um, I just I think it changes. I, I think we have changed it and we will continue to change the flyways. And, and we're not doing it intentionally, but by the course of man, you know, exploiting agriculture and doing the things we th- feel we need to do to feed the world, <clears throat> you know, that's that's what we've done. We've changed it and we'll keep changing it. And you made a comment in there about, you know, your flyways and your brother hunting every day. And a lot of, you know, when I'm re- I'm not reading into what you're saying, but you present opportunities for yourself. Now, given you have a different life, you've created a different life in the outdoors than, you know, some, some people that have a regular nine to five job, mm-hmm. you hunt a lot you have this burning desire still at your age and you're not old. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm just saying that you've been hunting for, is it safe to say 45 years? Um, 55, 55, 62. You're 62. You've been hunting since you're seven. Since I was six, actually. So I can't add (laughs) 56, 56 years. And this year, this year, starting in in September, let's say Katie got married in September or October. The last day of August. Last day of August. You were already gone from your home on this day, moving north. She got married in Montana, mm-hmm. correct? So I just went to Canada from there. <laughs> so you you derive this entire road trip based on fly fishing waters along the way in the continental United States. True. And then getting to Canada, which opens in September. It's open mm-hmm. now. I'm gonna I'm just gonna throw out a number that you hunted. I'm going to say that you hunted 99 days last year, this season. And you, I'm probably low. Yeah, more than that. More than that. With yeah. I mean, so here we are at 62 years old, and you didn't even stop when the last regulated day of the season was was legal for ducks. You decided to go to the the late season speckle belly, goose season, mm-hmm. snow and speck season in California, not just once, but I think four different trips. Yep. So you're looking at you, you are in your, you're 62 and you're literally hunting 120 days, probably. I don't know how many, but it's somewhere between 99 and 120, maybe more. What is it? Like, what, what could it be that would drive somebody? Because most of the time you, you hear of guys that are like, well, I'm really not that mad at them anymore. I'm really not, I really don't have an enemy to chase them the way that I used to. And I'm not, and I know that guys that are way younger than you that have said that, that, that are just fine going, you know, once a week now, what is it? Like, there's gotta be a reasoning. It can't, it's like, is it with the, your chemistry with Alan and the way you guys are wired? I've all, we talked about you with Sabini's. We talked about John David about being, you know, how sweet he is, but he's an absolute, the best killer. I know you're a killer too. You kill and you eat and you fish, you, you do a lot of catch and release and fish, but you love to eat seafood on ones you do keep. Sure. What is it? What what could it be to drive somebody to go to Canada for the legal amount of days you can as an American and then come here and hunt the whole season and then go to California and hunt all the way up until the legally last day you can there? When I was laying out in a <clears throat> field in California <laughs> on, I think it was the last weekend of this late speckle belly. So this was in mid-March, uh, a week or two ago. Um, I was thinking about this um, and... You know what it is? It's pretty simple. I mean, it's, I want to see what's going to happen next. I mean, it, it's different every day. And, and, you know, if it was the same every day, you just went out, killed seven mallards, went home, it would be boring. Okay. And that's not what happens in my life anyway. Um, and, and even if you did that, you're going to do it different ways. And, and you never know, you know, this year, the, the late speck and snow goose season, we, we just hunted specs primarily. We killed a few snows, you know, that came in with the specs. But 
it was crazy good. I mean, we had, I've got a couple friends I do it with, so I have to do it, you know, more around the weekends than would matter to me because they have jobs and everything. And, uh, you know, we had four, well, five, they hunted one weekend when I was with you doing the youth hunt, which was the opening weekend. But the next four weekends, we had weather every weekend. I mean, that never happens, okay? But the wind blew and it was cold enough and the geese flew well and, you know, weren't as wary as they could be if the wind wasn't blowing and it was 60 or 70 degrees. So um, we had just phenomenal shooting. But, you know, if I hadn't been there, I wouldn't have seen that. <laughs> that really is what keeps me going. Is That's it. And, and believe me, there there are mornings, you know, or there are evenings when I know I got to get up tomorrow morning and put out, you know, 30 or 40 or if I'm hunting with my kids, 60 or 80 dozen decoys <laughs> and uh, our kids, Katie's in on that too, um, you know, that I think, man, it'd be nice to show up about 830. <laughs> but I don't because, you know, that's all part of it, too. So, um, yeah. so it's kind of the fear of missing out, but you also want to see what Mother Nature does. It, that's very true. And, and I and, and I thought about, you know, uh, as I as I do get older, for sure. I mean, I can't physically do the things I could do, you know, when I was 30. Um but, but I can still put out decoys and pick them up. And if I got to go a little earlier, then, you know, I probably sleep in the field a little more. Because there are days in Canada when I go by myself just because I don't have anybody there with me, you know. And I'm there, so I'm not just going to not go. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're going to go snow goose hunting by yourself, you're going to go to a lot of work to do Because it can be like the worst hunting conditions in the world, right? Like you wake up and you're – like I walk out of the hotel in, in where we're talking about in Canada. Yeah walk out and I'm like, oh shit, there ain't no way Dave's not today. Look at this low ceiling. The wind's not blown. It's stale as shit for Alberta. And then you start driving down the road and you see the first flock leaving the roost and you're like, son of a bitch, I should have went today. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, it, that's got to be yeah. every duck hunter's thought. I should have went today just because yeah. they see whether or not and probably not you have a chance to work that flock because of the conditions. You're like, I, I should be out there. I have a chance at those right just there. Just to see it. Just yeah. to see it. Yep. And I feel that same way when I'm going out. And But I'm, yeah. but it, so how many days have you fly fished since you quit spec hunting, which was mid-March? So we're only talking a week, a week. Uh, two weeks. I, I fished every day last week. <laughs> and then they closed the lake. <laughs> Quarantine. <laughs> because of the, yeah, because of the. So so is it the same thing with fishing of missing out? Um, because fishing seems like it's the same thing, isn't it? Well, you, you don't know, know what's going on under the water. Really. No, you don't. And, and and it's different every day. But, you know, I did that, you know, with owning the fly shops and stuff for 30 years as a business. So it's the burning desire is not as much there for that. And plus, I can do it year round. You know, waterfowl season is, well, now it's like six months long, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> September to March. Um or seven months, I guess. But anyway. Do you um, think if you lived in a place where spring snows were more prolific, you know, like readily available to you, do you think you'd be chasing them still? Well, I, if you, yeah. But this time of year, much like that spec season is, you're going to chase them with the weather. So you have to have either a work for yourself, not work, or have a boss who's really understanding because you got to go when you got to go, you know. Um, I mean, like their yesterday storm, right? Day before yesterday, I'd have been gone someplace to do it, you know, in a second. Setting up yesterday morning with it, and you know, we ended up with a thirty-plus mile an hour wind, and it would have been really good. But uh, the season's closed. Yeah. <laughs> so, so back to fishing is that you you do have the the desire there, but it's not like it was when you first started the fly shop or when you first started your fly fishing True. endeavors, because you have fished all over the world. Like you've, you hunt a lot, but you have fished. I don't want people to think that's you have fished from 
I, don't, I mean, from Russia to the south end of Mexico to the Bahamas to the Dominican to all. Of, I mean, way more than that. Yeah. All over Alaska, but in, mainly fly fishing, right? This is what you do. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I fished a little with my dad when I was younger that, you know, we went a few places and, and uh, um, but outside the country. But um, yeah, uh, we had a pretty fun travel business associated with the fly shop. And so I got to do a lot of that. Yeah. I had an awesome conversation with Charlie Blackman last week in, in Arizona. He's the starting right fielder of the Rockies, mm -hmm. and he is obsessed with fly fishing. And I thought we talked about you, but we talked about how when he started talking about fly fishing, I was read, trying to read his body language, and I'm like, that's just baseball. Like the way that you walked up to the water and you look out there is you walking up to the on deck circle and watching the pitch and you're matching the hatch and you're trying to see a fin or you're trying to see where the moving water meets the steel water and you're trying to get all this stuff laid out. And that's the strategy of baseball too, is like, what is he going to throw if it's this count and all what? And, and so he yeah. starts comparing it and he's like, yes, that's exactly it. It's like, you're hunting a fish. It's like, it's not like, you know, you can, you can sight fish and, and fly fishing. You can indicate sure. fish, you know, Jim Ray. Yep. Have you talked to him lately? Um, no, but I've seen the pictures of the monster fish he caught. And you know his son caught his first one on an indicator yesterday morning. Did he really? Or no, whatever the last day was. So the Sunday, day, Sunday. Sunday morning. So Sunday morning he caught, nice. just fired up. Murphy caught his first fly rod trout, and he's addicted now. Sure. So that I thought that was a cool correlation of baseball and fly fishing, of hunting a fish. And then and then he started you know, talking, we started talking about you know, the correlations between fly fishing and hunting and the strategies. And he started talking about strategies of duck hunting, as opposed to what he thinks another big game hunter stuff would be. He just loves the change in the, in the versatility of waterfowl hunting. And that's, what's really catching. He's getting addicted to that right now. So it's kind of like your life is kind of that, that you, you, you were a soccer player, but that's still kind of the strategy of athletics sure. based on, and then the fly fishing and the, the hunting are There's, there's common threads there in my opinion, which you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, when you, like you're sitting on that on deck circle and you think you've got that pitcher figured out and you know what he's going to throw you on the first pitch and you walk up there and smoke it, you know, and hit it out or hit it in the gap or whatever, then, you know, you win. Right. And it's like, Oh, well, one of the last days, I think it was the last day we spec hunted, we got all set up and the wind switched and you know how that is. You've been doing this for seven months <laughs> you don't want to change those decoys right so you try to make it work and you turn around and you do whatever and it's just kind of halfway working so finally we said all right look we only got one more day to do this let's do it right you know so we stopped took 20 minutes while birds are flying the whole time not one second where they're not birds trying to come in you know and we we did what we thought was right and laid down and in 40 minutes we were done done yeah. it's crazy i mean they came in just like you drew up the play, you know, yeah. and, and when it works like that, it's great. And that's why you go to see if that's going to happen. And being able to adapt like that. Yeah, 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 exactly. But you got to have guys, you know, when you got 30 dozen or whatever decoys out, you know, you got to have guys that are willing to do it, you know, cause it's, it's a big commitment and it's always when the birds are flying when you always. decide to change. And then it's you know? always the fear now of that they're done. Now it's <laughs> no, let's just get back in and see if the seven decoys we already moved are going to work. No, that's not what no, it takes. You, you got to commit to it. Exactly. You got to commit to it. Just, just like you got to commit to that pitch. You, yeah. you know what you think, you know what he's going to throw you. You're going to make that swing. And if you're right. Yeah. And if you're not, you're here, the umpire go, that's one. Yeah. And, 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 and in casting, in casting a fly rod, my failure came from being not committed of being unsure 
Is my presentation going to be there? Is that, oh wait, should I hit it right there on the moving one? Wait, Dave's right. telling me to do this. And, and there's so much uncertainty when you don't have confidence and you're not committed to something to where when you're sitting there asking yourself, if we get up and not change these decoys this last day of the hunt screwed, if I don't present this fly the right way, and then you just start half-assing your cast, you're going to mess up and get tangled up sure. or you're going to have a bad presentation and the fly is going to slap the water the wrong way and scare the big trout off or whatever it is. And that part of commitment of mm -hmm. being committed is like so important because is I don't know how many conversations take place of should we, should we, <laughs> what do you think we ought to do? They're not working in the trees. I, I mean, the raft of ducks was right here yesterday. Well, maybe we ought to move to those four trees over there. Maybe the, the lights just hitting us just right to where, nah, that can't be it. And then you do it and you're like, son of a bitch. Yeah. That was it. It's like being committed to what you're thinking and not being so undecisive all the time as a right. hunter or a fisher. And, and also looking forward to that, you know? If you went out and set it up right every day, it would be like going out and shooting a limit of birds every day. That would get kind of boring too, you know, yeah. but, but you watch, you know, so much of waterfowling is watching the birds. I mean, you guys have the best videographers in the world doing the foul life, I think, you know, for, you. for, 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 for filming waterfowl. I mean, the guys are amazing and, and, you know, you, I watch birds all the time. Okay. So I know what they're supposed to look like and you portray that very well. And I'm not just saying that, you know, you're a friend of mine, but, but it's true, you know, and. And so much of waterfowling is going out and watching the birds and watching what they're doing and trying to figure out how you can get in the position to get them to do what they want to do is really what you're doing. You're not trying to make them do something they don't want to do. You're trying to get them in the position. You want to get your setup so that it looks like what they would normally come into, you know, yeah. and, and you, you know, if, if you're going to be good at it, you got to change it a lot because you're going to guess wrong. You know, you're setting up in the dark, okay? Yeah. How many times have you set up thinking, God, those decoys are a long ways away, and the sun comes up, like, right you can, there. like, spit on them. Sure, yeah. Fence <laughs> you know, lines right there. Yeah, right, yeah. Oh, wow. Tree lines that right power there. line was right over us. Happens so much. And then the first thing <laughs> you do is, oh, I'll let you see if it works. Yeah. No, nope. it's not going to work. You've nope. done this before. It's not going to work. I'm you know, which brings up another point that I saw when we were out there at the youth hunt is not just setting up in the dark and having your decoy spread placed different, is that you've worked your ass off over the years to 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 paint a picture or like I always talk about this blank canvas and the duck hunter just starts throwing paints at it. You've done that long enough now to where you can read a forecast and your decoy spread when I drove by it in the boat when I was bringing the kids out on the first uh, the first morning because the afternoon is when it really took off. Yeah. Um, when we knew that we didn't rush in the morning, no, we, we knew didn't. that the sun was the or we knew that we were going to have no wind and it was going to come up and which was so such a perfect way to execute that day because they got out there and they got to have a cool boat ride and they got to build a little bit of tension in themselves. Like where, where's the ducks? And then they'd see a few and get excited. And then that afternoon, they're just like, you've got to be kidding me. But yeah. your decoy spread was so much different than most people's would be on a youth hunt. And that shows like the kids that got to hunt with you first are lucky because you know that marsh and you know what that weather's going to do. But your decoy spread was like way different we don't need to give it away i don't know if you want to no, but i looked at it like holy shit no wonder they freaking have so much success and it was all about the 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 in my opinion the vibrancy the color the way they stood out the way they swam on the water the size mixture that you had it's and then you had some coots mixed in it was almost like you have 
painted this picture of like today is the day for this spread. Right. And you might not have used that if you were in a different pond or a different hole or a smaller body of water and you were hunting a different species. But for some reason, it was almost you knew you were going to be targeting birds that wanted to see why. Even mallards will decoy to, you know, a snow goose decoy sure or a sprig or canvas canvasback decoy. decoy. Yeah. It's so it was cool to me to see like your, your thought process isn't just about in the dark and setting up and being able to move. It's like, well, tomorrow I got to add this species or I got to, and I asked you that day at lunch, I go, can I borrow six of those? And you said, yeah. And it worked for us. We went out there, set them up. We actually took 12, set them up and boom. Right. The kids, I mean, Alyssa and, and, and Lucy both shot their first cans. Cause the problem, the problem or the problem I see a lot with, with diving ducks and little kids is getting them to slow down enough that the kids can hit them, okay? Right. If you've got your decoy set up and you've got your regular mallard and sprig decoys and whatever else you put out, which is fine, divers are attracted to them on the water, you know? I mean, they'll fly by them, but they fly so fast, and they're such strong birds, you know, they can take a licking too. Um, you know, it's just hard to get them to slow down, right? So if you have a lot of their kind of birds there, then, you know, they're much more apt to... It to either they'll come by the first time really fast and then, you know, they'll swing out over the open water and then they'll come back to check it out again and they'll be going a lot slower or, or they'll actually come in. Right. You know, which in both cases give the kids, but it gives anybody a better chance. But, but specifically for the kids, it gives them a much better chance to get those birds slowed down a little. Do you, do you practice that same thing that you're talking about right now early on when you're in Alberta? Do you practice species and being aware of, or, or you know that you that you, pretty much every day you're either going to hunt a mallard or you're going to hunt a, a, a snow or you're going to hunt a lesser Canada and you set up for those three every day or how, how do you dictate it? Is it? I would assume it's probably dependent on the field that you choose during the scout. Yeah, but but in, in Alberta at the time of year I'm there in September and October, you're 90 Five percent of the birds you're going to see are going to be mallards and pintails, unless you hunt water. And I think we've talked about it before. The part of Canada or the part of Alberta that I hunt doesn't have big reservoirs or a big, you know, flowing river like the Saskatchewan River or anything through it. So you don't have those big bodies of water for the birds to congregate on. So we don't hunt water very often because every time you hunt it, you're blowing a roost. So, you know, we try not, I mean, uh, it's different if it's a little pothole out in the middle of a wheat field or something. Yeah, no big deal, you know, but anything that's five or 10 acres or bigger is probably a roost pond. So we just don't hunt it that much. If you do hunt the water, you'll see a few more species. You'll see a few widgeon, you'll see a few gadwall, a few teal, a couple of divers here and there. But, but primarily... You know, as far as setting up goes, I mean, you're, you're setting up for mallards and sprig, and sprig will come into mallard decoys like crazy, so you, you just need mallard decoys in the field. And then as far as the geese go, I like to shoot specks, so I always, you know, I mean, assuming there's specks in the area, I'll always put specks out. Whether there are snow geese or not, I put out, a you know, um, a small group of snows, and that's where we hide. We just lay out in whites now. I hardly ever use a layout blind anymore. I do use the... Um, the stand-up blinds, what do you call this? Panel thing? blinds. Panel blinds. Um, now, uh, because of you, actually. Uh, and and this, that's been fun, you know, figuring out. It doesn't work in every field, for sure. And, you know, you've got to have a point or, or some reason why they'll come close to the edge of cover. Yeah. Um, More and, so geese than mallards, right? Definitely. I mean, oh, yeah. The ducks. Get, yeah. The ducks. I mean, there's still guys that, that hunt the old school way where I hunt. I see them every week. You know, they got the big cedar. They cut 
15 little cedar trees and they got a, you know, 10 foot by, by three foot blind out there. And it's just cedar trees all the way around it or something similar to that. And, you know, there's a big dark green thing in the middle of a yellow wheat field that's harvested and doesn't look like anything and the birds still come to it. So that's great. Yeah. That's the beauty of Canada though. Yeah. That, that's not and that's what gets you addicted. <laughs> yeah, it does. So with all of those days up there, and your love of eating wild game, you eat a lot of wild game, probably more than I do. And I eat a lot. Um, are you getting more creative with your diet, with your selection of recipes or the way in your preparation of ducks and geese? Sure. Because when you're killing this many geese and you're staying within the, the limits, which yep. we've had that discussion before mm-hmm. on your on your possession limit. Are you getting creative more so at this age in life of, are you, are you trying to have more flair, be more gourmet? Are you trying to be more outside the box sometimes and not just stick to the Dave Stanley basics of the mama Dells and the teriyaki, which are all unbelievable, all of your recipes. But do you find yourself now just like you're hunting as much as you do and your burning desire to do that? Is it trans transforming or, um, is it, is it evolved into the cooking part of it too? It has to some degree, not to the degree it has with you. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not really um, creative in the kitchen. You know, if somebody gives me a good recipe and I can mess around with it a little, you know, I'll, I'll end up cooking it the way I like it, and, and I'll add that to my, uh, you know, to my recipe file. Um, but I, I do the way I do it is like, you know, we just ground up a bunch of speckle belly and some pork fat and made sausage, and we ground up some more speckle belly and some beef fat and made burgers and. And, uh, you know, I'll serve those to you or anybody else and you'll have no idea you're eating a speckled belly goose. I mean, you just, you know, it's, or, or you will, if you can, you know, you have a refined taste for waterfowl like yourself, you'll go, yeah, that's not beef, you know, (laughs) but, uh, but people, what my point is, people who don't eat wild game will eat it. And, and, you know, a lot of people I serve are people who don't eat wild game. So, um, uh, anyway, so from that perspective, I do that. I, I, I do try to to mix it up because you get tired of it, you know, and I don't want to get tired of it. I like eating it. Um, uh, I got a buddy here right down the road who lives on the same street you live on who makes the best goose pastrami. I I gave him some big old honkers that I was just thinking, man, (laughs) this guy's going to hate me forever. Right. But he said he wanted some geese to make pastrami. So I gave him some geese, some breast to make pastrami. It was so good. Amazing. Unbelievable. Have you tasted, have uh, did you give this, or is this guy met Sabini? Because Sabini brought me some spec pastrami from Texas, your Texas hunt, which he we did it on TV. We filmed it well for social, but it was a it was a a, a cure, a dry cure, and it was it was wash the cure off after seventy two hours. No, huh? that's that's something that that Tommy and Sam. Dude, I got to give you some. I froze yeah. a bunch. It's amazing. Yeah, same thing though. And and I love pastrami, right? And all these years, I'm thinking, God, I didn't know to do this. What an idiot, you know. So I've done it for the last. Do you couple like? Of years. Do you like like the pastrami sandwich on the marble rye with the onions and the mustard? Oh yeah. Do you like sauerkraut? I'm not a giant sauerkraut. I can eat it. But, I can't. But I'd rather it. have I'd rather have those onions fried up in a frying pan, like a, a Philadelphia cheesesteak pepperoni yeah, mix kind of deal. No, nah, you're talking. Those are the bell. <laughs> Some bell peppers. All that. oh man, it's yeah. So when you start talking about you know commitment and and the decoy spread needs to be moved, and now you just mentioned that this sausage deal, this is a process. Sausage is processing. Sure. Is it hard? Is it difficult? Is it time consuming? Why is it intimidate so many people to where 
what when you can take that many birds and make it taste that good with that many different flavor profiles of chorizos and all of the different you know breakfast mm-hmm. sausages or whatever italian sausages sweet spicy whatever why does it intimidate so many people is it because they automatically think there's no way i could stuff a sausage right i, I think because i you know i came to this i don't know 15 years ago i probably started doing it seriously you know um it, it and it was an intimidation thing, you know. I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't want to screw it up. I didn't want to have all this stuff, spend all this time doing it and then have something that nobody wanted to eat. Um, that's part of it. Part of it is it is a time commitment, you know. I mean, I've, I've with your brother, he and I have processed an elk in a day, you know. I mean, obviously it was already quartered and everything, but we take it in there, chop it up, do whatever we needed to do, make the piles for burger, cut the steaks, do whatever, and, and it's done, you know. If you got somebody who get after it, that's great. But it takes a long time. You know, that's a that's a commitment of, you know, a guy kills a bunch of ducks and, and, and geese and then in February or March or whenever he says, well, I could better do something with some of these, you know, that different than we're not going to eat them all the same way. Then you've got to, you know, you got to take a day and and just say, okay, we're just going to process some of this stuff today, and you know, it'll end up being several days over the course of the year that you do that. But so, as far as that mentality that you're talking about is the provider mentality, because I don't, I don't know how many meals you've given to people that they take that meat and they cook with. You do it all the time. I do it all the time. Sure. I love being able to give wild game to people in in a time like we're in right now. I've been talking on on all these interviews that I've been doing about we're used to this. We're used to being alone. You talked about going right. hunting alone in, 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 in Alberta by yourself, or you're in a tree stand or on an elk stock or in the Turkey woods. We're alone. We understand isolation. Sure. We also understand survival. You also understand providing like, here's a meal, here's some meat here. We don't need to go to the store necessarily because we got all this shit saved up. Well, I, I agree. So when you talk about that mentality, would you tell somebody like when you do these youth camps and they're a little young on, on that part of the, the, the processing, but we do show them how to clean a duck and how to take the breastbone off or pluck a duck. The easy thing to do when you kill a deer or an antelope or an elk or a sheep is to take it to the meat market and get a guy to hang it and boom, it's, sure. it's cut up and wrapped for you. Would you tell somebody as far as the mentality of being a provider? And I've always told, I, I talked to Sabini about it yesterday on a podcast. I'm envious of butchers. I love a guy that can work a knife or a girl that can work a knife and take that, that sirloin out and that ribeye out and know all the different cuts. And I know you do this. I think it's so intriguing. Would you tell somebody get into that? Because there's, there's, it's probably just as rewarding as actual harvest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I enjoy doing it now. I don't look at it like, okay, I gotta get this stuff done. You know, it's like, okay. And, and I have a girlfriend who absolutely loves doing it. Kate loves it. And, and we'll be making sausage and, and, you know, when the first bunch of it comes out and you've got it all mixed up, man, she's making up a couple patties and throwing them on the stove while you're, while you're packaging the stuff. And, and, uh, you know, it's great. I mean, I, I, I really, really look forward to doing it. You know now, and 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 I and I gotta admit, when I first started doing it, I was like, oh boy, that's a lot of time. But you know, now I got a lot of time, so it's not that much. But it is it is something that I that people owe it to themselves almost to feel what it feels like to to cut something up like that, mm-hmm. and then to wrap it in butcher paper, then to or to shrink wrap it or vacuum seal it, whatever you're doing, and then to put it in the freezer and then write or write on it with a sharpie or whatever permanent marker. Yep. The 2020 speckle bellies, California boom. And then when you take them out and you serve them, you're just like, it's not a bragging deal. It's a, it's a, it's a feeling of exuberation inside of you. Like, man, that's full circle. 
Right. That's what we did it. We're, we're putting this meat into our bodies to be able to have enough energy to keep working, to keep providing, to keep taking care of Alyssa and to take care of John, David and Kate and Katie. Da, 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 da. It's like, what is better lifestyle? What is cooler than that? I know. And you said something there where you, you know, put speckle bellies, you know, 12, 18, 20 or whatever the date was you shot them. And, and I always put where I got them to, you know, whether it's California, Idaho, Nevada, whatever. And people look at that and go, well, why do you do that? What does it matter? Do they taste that much different? And I go, no, man. But every time I grab that package out of the freezer, I look at that date and where it was. And I think it's impossible for me not to think of that day or that trip. Maybe yeah. I don't remember that Who specific you were with, day. What? Exactly. Yeah. The, all of the reasons that we actually do this. Yeah. You know, I um, love that. And it's, you know, it takes me one second more to put NV on that package or ID for Idaho or Alberta or whatever it is. It doesn't make any difference, but it makes a difference to me when I go get it out of the freezer. And yeah. it makes a difference to me, too, when you go to grab it out of the freezer and there's nothing in there that says 18 and yeah. there's nothing in there anymore that says 19. <laughs> no, and you're like, there isn't. damn, we eat a lot of wild game. Yeah. You know, yeah. You're, we're always thinking of different recipes sure. that, to, to do with them and to use it. And what that's what it's for. That's and what that's, we do. it. That's right. And that's part of the deal. There's, there's a few exceptions. Um, fish would be one of them, you know, that my son um, guides in Alaska in the summertime when he can't shoot ducks <laughs> and geese, and uh, he usually sends me some salmon and stuff. So, uh, you know, some of that will carry over a little longer than the wild game will because I don't get that much of it. Um, but I try to go into when I leave for Canada, you know, that I don't have any – or if I do, I maybe have one or two meals of, of waterfowl left in my freezer. If that, oh, I'm lucky if, if I, if it lasts that yeah, long. Yeah. You remember last year I Usually, said, Dave, can you bring yeah. some duck? And you're yeah. like, uh, no. And I'm like, shit. <laughs> We're both out. We're really? both out. <laughs> but now, but now I've been talking with Remy and I talked to you about this and we're getting, Remy's finally back. I don't know. I don't know anybody that hunts in the most weirdest spot. Like him and Shockey. He's like, amazing. He's a uh, dude. I love the guy. both of them. Both of those guys are yeah. amazing. But Remy is, he's <laughs> just wow. on a different level of yeah, completely like, like weird. Like, how do you do that kind of shit? Yeah. And he looks at me and goes, well, how do you do that? And I'm like, well, that's easy compared to what you're doing. He's like, no, it's not because I can't do that. And I'm like, it's, so it's like a weird balance. And he's, he's really like forthcoming about, you know, this is why I'm where I'm at in life because I'm not good at that, but I'm really good at this set, skill sets over here. And it's really cool to hear him talk about it. But he wants to do this, uh, this processing deal with you and I of, of I want to do waterfowl. Right. Um, you know, take what, and I've been saving them because he, lent, he's, he, he was supposed to be able to do it two weeks ago. And then we both canceled it because I didn't have the bullet points, I remember. Yep. but now I got it all. And I want to, I want to lay down some really cool chorizos and, and what, what is the, the main thing you have to think of? And when you're talking about processing sausages and chorizos and stuff like this, pepperonis or hot dogs, whatever, do you always use the same pork fat consistency? Do you always use pork fat or what do I need to be thinking about going into this with you and Remy of what we're going to complement or subsidize with, with our wild game meat? Because you can't just make it out of the, the ground up spec or whatever. No, because there's no fat in there's it. There's no fat. It'll all fall apart. Um, I, I use pork fat for all the sausages just because, um, and, and I use, try to use beef fat for most, if not all of the burger. Okay. Um, there's a couple of exceptions, but the reason I use the pork fat for all the sausages is I know what that's going to be like, right? And then you mix it with your, your whatever animal spec or elk or whatever it is, doesn't make any difference. And then, you know, the, the way you can really change the flavor and everything is with all of these amazing 
you know, seasonings that are available now for breakfast sausage or for chorizo or for, you know, pick one. I mean, there's lots of them. So I try to stick with the sausage or excuse me, with the pork fat only because uh, um, that I know what that's going to do. So there's a there's a constant there, right? Yeah. And then so maybe I start with twenty percent pork fat, and I find out that's too much or too little. Then no big deal. I just you know you know you you make up a patty after you run the first batch and throw it on the grill and see what does, see what it does. And as long as it's okay, then you're fine. If it falls apart or or it's got too much grease in it or whatever, then you got to add more meat or more sausage and or excuse me more meat or more uh, pork fat, uh, you know, to make it work out. But um, you, you get you get the feel for it after a while. I mean, it's it's amazing how comfortable I feel doing it now. From I, and I remember when I started, you know, I wanted everything to be weighed out to the the nth of an ounce, you know, so that I knew that I was doing it exactly right, whatever that was. And so how does out, a guy start? I found out there wasn't as exactly right, you know. How does a guy start? Do you well? Is I think, there a kit that you would recommend? No, but I think you go to a store. Um, you you want to get. First, let's do it kind of from the end product forward. You want to get the best vacuum, the best vacuum packer you can afford, okay? Because ultimately, you don't want to go to all this work and then have it freezer burn, right? Okay. Um, and the reason I say get the best one is we've all bought, I won't say the name brand, but we've all bought them and they, they burn out, you know, they either quit vacuuming or they quit sealing or whatever. I've got two or three of them that I just use for sealers now because I can make bags faster if I'm using three of them than one. Um, but you know, get a good one, you know, and a good one's going to cost you 500 bucks. It might cost you a thousand bucks, but it's going to cost you 500 bucks anyway. Um, Ooh, I had no idea. Yeah. And, and, and because then you can, you know, when you process a whole elk, you're going to make a hundred bags or more, you know, in a day. Well, if your if your uh, sealer thing burns out, what do you do? You got to go get one. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that's the biggest expense in the thing, I think. And then you know, bags are expensive, but you know, that's just it's like golf balls; they're expensive too. But you got to have them. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, and then you need you need some kind of mixing thing where you can mix the port. You know, you, you run it through a grinder. You know, and and grinders. Um, you know, I wouldn't get one that if you're going to do this seriously, certainly I wouldn't get one that has less than a half a horsepower motor in it, you know, just because you just want it to work for a long time. Um, you know, and so you need a grinder to, to do the grinds of both the fat and the meat. And then you need a mixer, you know, that you throw it in to mix the fat and the meat together. And then you run it back through the, maybe on a finer. So does a mixer kind of look like a funnel? With the handle on it where it kind of mixes in a big bowl and then funnels down through and falls out into another bowl and it's mixed together now? No, it's actually, well, the one I have is just a, a an aluminum box with a handle on it and you've got, you know, a, a mixing wheel inside there, you know, it's like, got like big arms on it. So it, it actually mixes all of that stuff together. So you just crank it around um, a whole bunch till it's mixed up. Then you take that product and either run it back through the grinder one more time. Some some stuff needs to be ground twice, okay? Or you're you're all set and you you put your seasoning in there and and mix it up so that you got the seasoning spread out equally amongst all of the 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 product that you put into the mixer. And then you can bag it from there or like I say you can run it back through the grinder or whatever, you know, if you need to do that. So in any part of this equipment has anybody ever put a magnet or something that would take care of a waterfowler's main problem in in eating ducks and Interesting. Geese? No. That would catch all of that 100% coming out to where it would never get stuck in a patty or a stick or anything. 
Because that would really suck. Because the way we eat jerky and the way that a guy eats, oh. eats a pepperoni stick as opposed to a bite of steak is completely different. Yes. You're chomping down, right? And you're going to smoke yourself pretty good. Oh, no. I have a tooth I need to go <laughs> see a dentist about right now. So do you see that a lot? Do you do this enough with waterfowl and the processing part to where you you see a lot of the shot coming out of the bird when you're doing this? You do. Song? And you learn how to look for it. You know, the kind of wound that, that the shot's going to stay. If you've got a wound channel that's got a feather in it, guarantee you there's a shot in that wound channel someplace you know so if you pull the feather out that's really nice but you need to dig that piece of shot out too and again that makes the processing process longer, longer. but um, the other thing I do um, uh, is I'll take like goose because it's quite a bit thicker than duck I'll take it and cut it um, what's the right way to say that you know butterfly yeah yeah I'm gonna cut the the, the fillet in half but but in half thickness wise okay yep. so instead of having an inch plus thick thing I'll have something that's a half an inch thick and then I bought a magnet um, that has a beeper on it and it was like a hundred dollar thing you know but, oh, but they're, they're readily so available. That's, that's kind of what I was saying. Yeah, and you just got to pass it over that stuff. And it's amazing how much of it it catches you know that you didn't know was there. Is that the same thing that a game warden would use? Um, you know, I've never been checked by a game warden who had a magnet. Really? Mm-mm, never have. I don't know um, if I have either. Yeah. I, so I don't know what they use is, is you know, I mean, I, I've seen it on just, TV they and they got a little show. wand, you know, but th- this is a little wand, but I think theirs are probably way more expensive than mine, you know, because they have to go through feathers and meat and bone to, to determine sure. what's in there. Whereas this, you know, the, the one that's at least the hundred dollar one that I got is, you know, it's, uh, it, it'll work, but, but it won't work a hundred percent, you know, but whatever you get out is, is less chance of you busting a tooth, you know? Right. Oh, yeah. And then a lot of times when you cook this stuff, it, the, the, the shot will fall out anyway, you know, it won't in sausage obviously, but the grinder, man, I don't think I've ever gotten a piece of shot through a that's interesting. Anything that's been ground. Because I would hate to bite into oh, a, pepper- a hamburger or a, or a pepperoni stick. You know, oh. if you're doing sticks or something. Yeah. I don't know if you could actually get one caught in there. I don't know. I've never heard of it. But it just seems like if you're going to specialize one day or two, you know, commit two days to doing ducks and geese, that you would have a probability mm-hmm. of that. Some right. Odds. And so so I try to do it where I can. Um, I have had it, you know, because I like my jerky thick. You know, I don't like it thin where it gets hard and, and brittle. Um, I want it to have a little, you know, like these um, things from, from take, Jack Link's, take actually. Those. those are the best yeah. things ever. Um, uh, you know, I want it to, to have some texture and everything to it. So I have found shot in that, and so i got to be careful about that. Um, but, um, you know, if, if you cut your jerky skinny, then you don't have to worry about it. Th- that's one of the nice things about the pastrami is if you get a deli slicer, you know, and you to slice it up, then um, you can set that thin enough that it'll. There's, you're going to see the shot in the piece of meat if you don't if it doesn't fall out from the process of slicing it anyway. So you have all of the equipment down. Where does a guy go about getting pork fat? Do you have to have? I your called. Own? I called the guy yesterday to make sure the store was open, and he said he he would uh, have some by tomorrow. So I'm going to go pick it up tomorrow. But I, I just use a butcher shop here. The one in Sparks is Blue Ribbon Meats. They they sell pork pork fat and beef fat. A lot of times you have to call them ahead of time and say, "Hey, I'm going to need five pounds of this and that." And they'll go, "Okay, call me back on Thursday because I'll have cut up some steaks or you know cut up a hog or whatever, and and I'll have that then." So do you have to? Can you go to a regular supermarket and go to the back butcher wall and say, hey, sure. do you have a pile of fat I could buy? Yep. Or do they give it to you out the back door? I you mean, can do that. I mean, I would, w- would want to buy it only because you want to have them accountable for it, you know? 
In yeah. other words, that's just a smart thing to do, you know. Um, but um, yeah, there there's a number of stores that'll do that. Some won't, you know. They're too big a chains. They they just you know they don't want to deal with it, uh, or the liability. I guess that there might be some. I don't know what that would be. But anyway, um, I wish I'd have been thinking about this because I just bought two pigs from the four, from Merlot Four H. And the Chico Locker did them. And I could have told them, save all the fat for Dude. me. Yes, you could have. Because they gave me all the chops and all the pork roasts and everything. And I'm sitting here thinking, talking to you, going, what in the frick was I thinking? Yeah, because on that, that stuff stores really well if you vacuum pack it, too. I mean, you can you can freeze that for a long time and it doesn't. Gosh, dang. I'm going to call the Chico Locker today and see if I could. Yeah. I'll call Rocky because he knows the owner and just go pick some up. Sure. I think you're allowed to drive. Are you allowed to even drive around right now? Can I drive to California and pick up pork fat? I haven't done it, so I don't know. (laughs) Not the pork fat, but I haven't driven to California in the last two weeks, so I really don't know. I hear that that it's the time to drive there, though. (laughs) The the roads aren't crowded. Um, (laughs) I have an opportunity to go down there this weekend for the opener of Turkey. Would you? Um, How scared are we right now of this virus and this quarantine? Um, you walked in today, and I almost went to shake your hand, but then we elbow bumped, and we've known each other for over 20 years. Of course. Um, and, and let me tell you why that is, is I don't want to be the guy that gives it to you. I don't think you're going to give it to me. And, and, and I don't, and, think, and I don't think I have it, and, and I know you feel that way. But So if we both feel that way, let's just do the smart thing, yeah. right? And it, it was it's hard in the beginning. It is because, you know— um, you know, we shake hands with people. We hug people all the time. That's just the kind of people we are. You know, it's not a big deal. Um, but it's a big deal when you realize you can't do that anymore. It's amazing. You walk what into we a room with your hand out and then you go, oh, maybe that's not such a good idea. Yeah. And so, you know, it's changing the behavior. Well, these reports. It's changing all... the decoys, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you got to do it. it. And, and you got to do it now. And I committed to this quarantine <laughs> of like, dude, I, we have, I don't know. I got an uh, invite last night for another dinner. And if it was just me, I would have been like, well, maybe I'm going to go do, go do that. But then I have Alyssa and she's, you know, has symptoms of asthma and they're saying, that's no game changer. There. Yeah, they're you like know. putting out reports right now. It says absolutely positively, 100% no play dates, no sleepovers. Do not put your kids. Up. And I'm not going to. Right. So it's just, but the, what really gets me. And I heard another report on this morning is the people that aren't paying attention that are saying that they can't get it. I mean, I've seen videos yeah. of college parties of kids licking the, you know, getting in a line and passing a sucker to like 30 people, a, a lollipop or a blow pop, whatever. I've seen toilet seat licking things. And I'm like, how ignorant do you need to be right. that this disease or this virus has killed thousands? Tw- you know, I don't know how many thousands in Italy now in China, and now it's in America and we're up to, you know, 300 or 400 now. And the main places are Washington, California, and New York. There's 15,000 cases in New York. And that's only because they are doing more testing, right? It's going to get worse before it gets better. But I'm sitting here like, I'm like, should I go kill a turkey? Well, when I do that, I'm going to have to, you know, I'm going to see some friends down there and then I'm going to want it there. You know, what are we going to do? So the things I would tell you about that, I, I listened to a podcast from a doctor in New York the other day that was really calming. I mean, it was, you know, the the gist of it was you're going to get this if somebody coughs on you or somebody coughs on a surface that you touch, right, instantly, basically. And then not only do they have to do that, but then you have to touch your mouth, your nose or your eyes, you know, so that it has a chance of getting inside you, Right. Um, the, he, the point he made was like the nurses in the hospitals in New York, which are the most overstressed ones right now, because it's just blowing up there. They only wear face masks. Um, you know, the, the kind that, that block everything, right. When they're trying to get the patient to cough, 
you know, uh, they're doing something to him that they know they're going to make him cough. Because it, it's so the, the point of it was, and I don't plan, you know, I don't claim to be an expert or anything, is your chances of getting this are pretty small if you do the stuff they're telling us to do, which right. is clean your hands, clean your hands, <laughs> clean your hands, you know, don't touch your face, don't touch your face. You do those two things and your chances of getting it are, are pretty microscopic, to tell you the truth. And staying away from most people. And staying six feet away. That's six right. Away. And so that, to answer your turkey hunting question, I would go down, you know, to some gas station that I can fill my truck up, you know, with my credit card and I don't have to go inside, right? And if I can drive over the hill to where my friend, you know, I'm going to go turkey hunting uh, and meet him and have a conversation with him and say, look, man, we got to be smart about this. You know, if there's going to be a bunch of people in camp, you need to tell me now because I really don't want to come. Um, yeah. You know, if I'm going to see you, you're going to show me where to go hunt and everything. That'll be fine. Um, you know, it'd probably be better if we drove in different vehicles and, you know, just just treated it like we should treat it seriously. Yeah. You know, turkey hunting's a solitary deal. I mean, once you get in the woods, man, I'm not going to ever tell you not to go. <laughs> I, but you just have to be smart about getting there and getting home. You know, and, uh, um, you know, so if, if, if all of those things are possible, like I know my brother is, you know, the only thing he loves more than waterfowl hunting is turkey hunting. And it starts April 1st, the state he's going to start in. And, uh, although he's already killed a turkey, a couple of turkeys in Hawaii this year. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He and his kids went over and did that cause they never had. Uh, but anyway, the state he's going to start in, in the South will open April 1st and, you know, he'll be there, but he'll be camped in a tent off by himself someplace. And, you know, he'll be safer there than he will be anywhere, you know, or as safe there as he will be anywhere. So I, I think that, you know, the shelter in place things, that's the law. That's the law. You got to you got to do what the law says, you know, um, that we, we so far have avoided that in Nevada. But, you know, who, who knows how long that'll last. And I don't know how that applies to you going to California. So you should check that out I before you go. Into that. But if you can if you can get over there and get in the turkey woods without contact being in contact with a bunch of people or many people or any people perf preferably, yeah, go. Turkeys aren't going to give you coronavirus. <laughs> Is there a reason why after this conversation of your love of tricking animals and, and making them, you know, presenting it to where they 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 know they want to come into you because you're real? Why don't you chase turkeys more with? I know you fish. But why, like, turkey season's coming up pretty close to where you just ended your spec season. Mm -hmm. Are you wore out by this time of year to where you do need a rest of the gun? Well, I'll tell you, it, it's that could be a little bit of it. But but April and May are awfully good fishing months if you like to trout fish, and I do. So, And if you like to fly fish for trout, they're awfully good months in this part of the world. So, um, you know, I, I look forward to that, too, just a different experience. And, and I've always told myself, and I've always believed this, that that I love to hunt more than I love to fish because I can't hunt every month of the year, you know? And if I could, then that would change my view of it, I think. So I, I like the fact that I get shut down for a while. I don't like it, but, you know, it, it makes it it makes it to where it's the most exciting and rewarding thing I get to do. Are you already excited right now at being March, mid-March? Are you already fired up for September, October? Oh, yeah, I took all my stuff out of my trailer that I've taken to Canada the last 10 years, sold my trailer. So now I have to buy a new trailer <laughs> and, uh, you know, I want to trick it out and, you know, just there, there's things from the old trailer that I know I can improve on and make it easier. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, I'm not getting any younger, so I need to make it easier. Um, but, um, but, and then I can 
takes more things that I couldn't take before because of space considerations and things. So I'm, you know, gonna. So this is your summer project at the same time you're re rebuilding a cabin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you gotta have a lot of projects when you can't do anything else. <laughs> But I mean, you're, you got your, your hands full now because I you're going to build your dream cabin at the club. Agreed. It, are you excited about that? I am. I am. That's, um, you know, it's kind of a bittersweet thing. Uh, I think we're going to tear down the old cabin on Sunday and, and I'm not, I can't say I'm looking forward to that in one respect, you know, cause I mean, my kids grew up in that cabin and I've had more fun there than I've had any place else in my life, you know? Um, but it's, it's, I'm not just tearing it down to rebuild a nicer one. I mean, it's, it's, it's served its purpose. <laughs> it's fallen down. So, um, I didn't build it in the first place, but, um, it's just got, got some issues that can't be corrected, um, because of the soils and stuff out there. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. And the guy you had on uh, Tom Sabini and his son, Sam, Tom's the general, he's the guy who's helping me build it. So what's time frame on something like that from tear, from destruction to, to, Moving we should be done. One. We should be done to where it can be inhabited. I mean, you know, everything's got to line up and, and who knows what's going to happen with the coronavirus and all that, you know, whether things will get shut down. I'm hoping it'll be mid, um, the latest would be like mid to late July, you know, Such in a perfect world sometime in June. Because um, I don't want it to screw up my Canada trip. <laughs> is, it, is it too dwelly? Is it a shop next to a cabin? Garage, a garage, garage in a cabin. Yeah. How yeah. cool is that going to be? Yeah. So you know, my boats and motors will be inside for the first time in their lives. Your boats and motors will be inside for the first time in their lives. <laughs> no, they're yours. So do you do, do you think? Are you worried at all? as an outdoorsman of how drastic this could get? Like, what if they do close the Canada border? It's you closed, can't... Chad. You can't go there. You can't go there now. You can't go there right now. Nope. It's closed. So it is a worry that if they're going to open it or not. Oh, yeah. For sure. And, and you know, we I had a board meeting last night for a camp we put on for kids to, you know, teach them. It's an outdoor skills camp is the name of it, uh, the Mason Ortiz Outdoor Skills Camp. And um, we decided very difficult decision to not have the camp this year because we've the last 30 days we've gotten zero response from parents you know having kids sign up applications and everything normally we have 150 applications by the end of april and of which we pick 64 kids sometimes more sometimes less but but, but we always pick 64 kids and uh um we haven't gotten a single application in the last 30 days which this is prime time you know so anyway we had to we had to cancel the camp and that was not a good thing, you know. Uh, is this so, the one you do it out north here? Yeah, out on the Winnemucca Ranch. Um, so, uh, you know, that was a sad deal. Um, but it'll be that much better next year because we'll have that much longer to work on it. You know, that's the way you have to look at it. Um, yeah. Uh, this is this is a bad deal we're going through right now, but it is temporary. I mean, we'll get out the other side of it eventually. And uh, but but when is eventually is the question that really started this conversation. And, you know, who knows? I mean, it may come around to September and we still may not be able to go to Canada, um, you know, which would be a bummer for sure for you and for me oh, and so. for a lot of people we know uh, and, and for a lot of other reasons and just hunting. But that's the one I'm concerned with yeah. <laughs> totally selfishly. Um, well, that's why you go to Canada. It is. It is. That's what got me hooked on Canada. Now, I would go to Canada just to go to Canada. I like Canada I do a too. lot. I love rural Canada. So the do people I. are so cool. Awesome. <laughs> oh, my God. Combines, whiskey, and yeah. ducks. And, and they just, you know, when you get way out there in the boonies, and they just want to talk to somebody. Do you think it's true that most Canadians don't know how to cook? 
I have to ask you this <laughs> because I, I literally like, I know the girl that you, that you, the lady the, I live with, the lady that you farm. live with, yeah. she knows how to cook. Oh but my God. A lot of restaurants I go to up there, I had to ask you this, like, do they not know what seasonings and rubs are and stuff? Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to start shit. I'm just wondering is, is the culinary yeah. art really not up there yet? Dude, they put gravy on their French fries. They have to, right? <laughs> and then the Chinese restaurant's the busiest place in town because <laughs> yeah, Chicken, Char- Chicken Charlie, uh, I got a guy named Chicken Charlie up there that's just dead on and consistent every time. Yeah, yeah. But it's not It's not a Canadian, I don't know if I'm being mean by saying that. It's just like, the, I don't know. I've, I've eaten in some really good restaurants, and, and but they were in the big cities. In the I, big I cities. Say. Um, most of the small town um Drive-ins, diners, and dives, to use a uh, Americanism, um, are it's pretty plain food. But you know, it won't kill you. It's good. No, you know, I just was just wondering not. what your thoughts were, like that they don't take it serious in those rural areas where you go to a cafe here, like in Cedarville, let's say, you order a country-style comfort food plate. You're like, damn, this is some good, good right, food, right? right? right. Arkansas, sure. same way. Oh yeah. I hope I don't piss any Canadians off. Oh, like and and look, they're they're. They're farm people, you know. They're in, in the communities I hang out in, anyway, and most of them that you do too. And and they're they're pretty pretty plain folks. And that's not a criticism. No, that's just how they that's are. a compliment in my book. You know, I mean, yeah. they're just they are what they are. And you know, a hamburger's a hamburger. So, so what's coming up? What's is is Katie's married? She's getting ready to move into a new house. She, she did. Is she pregnant? No, not that I know of. Not that you know of. <laughs> Katie, I did not ask him to ask me that question. <laughs> no, I'm just wondering because it seemed like her and Char, you know, her and Carl are going to get after. They that's the kind of people they are. They're going to want kids. Uh, yeah, you know, I've never had that conversation with him. I've tried to avoid it because I want him to have kids. But you know, John want, David's but, already got two. Yeah, Is he John having David, more? John David and Katie both got married last year, and he has. I think they would like to, but you know, things got to settle out business wise and everything for them. But he inherited. Two wonderful little boys that are currently six and eight. Both of them shot their first goose this year, and uh, they're into it. And like doing it with their new dad and with their dad. And uh, he's so, awesome with them too. He, what is his wife's him. Instagram? Do you know it off the top of your head? I don't I even do know. Not. I, I do don't know not. if you even pay attention to Instagram. Yep, she sent me a really cool one yesterday, but I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I just want. Is. I want to. I just want to take two seconds and find it because I want to. <laughs> I want to. I want to plug her. Uh, her Instagram account because. She is freaking amazing. Oh my god! The Tom Sabini one that he got from her. The, I'm like, yeah, I'm, she's I'm a, kind of irritated. What Chad's talking about it. She's a painter, and uh, I'm getting kind of irritated with her because it's been seven <laughs> months or eight months since she told me she was going to get me mine of the ducks. Well, she, I don't. I think she's. That's a new medium. I mean, that's a new subject matter for her. She she does amazing fish, amazing trout and steelhead. Um, she is amazing yeah. at okay at Ally A L L E Y. Beck, B-E-C-K, Stanley, S-T-A-N-L-E-Y, at Allie Beck Stanley. I'm telling you this because it's a public account. Go on and look at John David Stanley's wives. What's a picture of the wedding? I'm looking at some of her paintings right now, and her fish paintings are, I mean, on a different level. A different freaking level. Look at this picture. Oh, I've seen them all. Oh, (laughs) dang, man. Look at the bear. Yeah. And she's yeah, looking yeah. at her canvas. But yeah, Allie Beck Stanley. Allie has an E in it. And just go look at this girl's painting and her raw talent. Look at this drawing. I mean, holy shit. Look at that. Yeah. 
She is just the bomb. She is. Check her out. Allie Beck Stanley. Oh, she's awesome. And a great mom. Yeah. John David hit the jackpot, especially if you're going to fill your house with art, man. You're going to freaking imagine walking through that museum. That's right. I mean, just straight up. Allie Beck Stanley. Check out her artwork, her fish. And she commissions piece. She commissions pieces and she can do you customs. If you have a picture of an awesome fish that you and your boy or you and your girl or you and your your, uh, significant other have caught together, whatever it is, she, I think that you got to give her a shot at it man her stuff is blows my mind every time i see it ali beck stanley we're going to end this podcast dave stanley thank you so much oh thank you chad it'd be really cool always enjoy it always do too i love reading around we i wish we like i was talking yesterday of like jim ray i was like dude how lucky are we to have the lives that we have as friends and community to, to and what we take for granted sure of our dinners, our Saturday night dinners in a, in a, in a cocktail and a UFC fight or a cornhole match or horseshoes and a duck dinner yep. and the Traeger's going or there's whatever. How lucky are we and how bad do we take that for granted when now you're a mile away and we're sitting here going, should we see each other? Should we not? Should yeah. we sneak out? It's almost like we're in high school sneaking out behind our parents back. Right. And, and we have to, I want to be responsible, yep. but it's like, it's, it's, it's just weird. It's, it's not weird. It's, we take so much for granted in, in the little things in life of just being able to, to, to sit down and talk to somebody like that is a cool thing to be able to do in Absolutely. our country and, 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 and our freedoms here. And now we're kind of being, you know, quarantined and it's, it's mm-hmm. what we get to do on a daily basis. We're freaking lucky to do so. Well, and it'll make those when we can get back together on every Saturday night, we feel like it'll make those a lot more special. I mean, and, and hopefully people remember that, you know, this is, um, this is this is a this is a tough time right now. <laughs> it is, and but it will get better. I think it's know? not only going to make them that much more special, and and not, I'm not saying celebratory or anything like right. that, but I'm saying we're going to realize, like, man, this is like what you said, special. Like, we're going to sure. be hugging more. We're like, yeah. there's a beer commercial out there right now. I don't know who it is, but it's it's the the theme of it is why don't we toast each other more? Mm-hmm. Why don't we hug his brothers more or, you know, tell each other we love each other more? Why don't we do that as Americans? In different societies, they do it more. In, in different parts of this country, they do it more. Different families do it more. Everybody's wired different. But I think a good message to get out of this is how special those times where we are together are. And we do it a lot. We truly take that for granted. We do. Because I mean, literally, I can walk up the street and come have dinner with you yeah. or come over and talk to you. And whatever. now it's like, well, you can That's come, like, but yeah. I don't want you bringing 12 people. Right. You know? and, and is Alyssa there? Because I got I, the last thing I would want is for her to get sick because I'm around yeah. or somebody I bring. And so, you know, it's we're doing the smart thing. It's not the easy thing, but it's a smart thing. And, and, and I hope all the people listening and all the people they talk to will do that, too. I mean, really, we'll, we will come out the other side of this, but we'll come out of it a lot faster if we do. 100 percent. You know, if we if we take social distancing and washing your hands and not touching your face. If we take that all seriously, then you know, you're going to have a problem with that not touching your face. You know, you uh, always have one of your fingers in your mouth. I know, it's weird. <laughs> I probably got it. Guys, this episode was brought to you by Gerber Knives and Benella USA. Please continue and thank you so much for supporting the partners and sponsors that sponsor us and support all of our properties here. Brand new episodes of The Foul Life airing right now exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. Check out all of our merchandise at thefowllife.com. Brand new duck calls available. The Chit Chat is our new model at jargongamecalls.com and at both jargongamecalls.com and thefowllife.com. We have awesome new hats that are available right now. We have specials on duck calls. Buy a duck call, get two hats free at Jargon Game Calls. 
And again, please tell your friends and family about our podcast, This Life Ain't For Everybody and The Foul Life. We have several more podcast titles that are getting ready to launch in the training and fitness world, in the big game world, and in the cooking world. Be looking for those and our brand new brand, The Provider. We've let it out of the box. The Provider is coming, and we will give you more details on that very soon. Thank you all so much for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review. Tell your friends and family. We appreciate it wholeheartedly. And Tom, hit that button. This is 2AM Logic. The song is called My Foul Life. Ah uh-huh.